So when uh, when I preached this a week ago, uh, I started with a little group activity. So how many of you grew up uh, in church and your parents were always saying, "Don't look, don't look behind you." I mean, can you always look behind you in your pews? When parents tell you that, look forward. Yeah. Well, today we're going to talk with the people behind us, so you're going to be able to turn around and talk with those people. So what I want to do, Isaiah 53.3, a famous passage which reads, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sores and acquainted with grief, and one as whom, as one from whom men hide their faces, who is despised and esteemed him not. So what I want to do, I'm going to sneeze, so I'm going to be quick. Um, talk with the people around you. The word despised shows up twice in this passage. I want you to talk with people around you. This is a prophetic passage talking about the coming Messiah and how people are going to respond to him and react to him. For the people around you, you don't have to move around, but just with the people around you, turn around and talk with people. What does the word despise mean? What is the emotion and response and the feeling conveyed in this Isaiah passage? Because it's going to be important as we go into our main text. So for the next three minutes, what does that word despise mean? What does that portray to you guys? How do you think of people in the context talk and feel about this Jesus Messiah? The next three minutes, just talk with the people around you. They'll bring us back. Yeah, it's great. It gives a little, you know, it's a verse that we've probably all heard before, but it kind of just adds a little bit more texture to it when we stop and think about these words that show up twice in one verse. The reason why I wanted to talk about this is because it's going to show up in our passage um, this morning. So before we uh, get to our main passage, we're going to be looking at Genesis 25. But before we get to our main passage. I want to walk through the entire chapter of Genesis 25, because uh, it's a fairly large chapter, there's a lot in there, so it builds context to where we're going to be getting to this morning. And so this morning, the beginning of Genesis 25, yeah, the beginning of Genesis 25 starts like this, Abraham's old, and he's about to die, and Sarah has already passed on before him, but what Abraham does, what Abraham does is he marries another woman, and he has six sons with this, this new wife of his. So not only does he have Ishmael from Genesis 21, um, but he also has um, Isaac. But now he has these six other sons, and as it says there, these sons grow up, and Abraham gives them gifts. Now, we don't know what these gifts were, but we know that Abraham was extremely wealthy. So he gives these sons these gifts, and he sends them off to the east. But to Isaac, he gives everything, and that will be important later on. So he gives these extra sons these gifts, then he gives Isaac everything else. Then we get a little bit of insight into Ishmael, because Ishmael hasn't shown up in a while. Now, Ishmael, we get this kind of backstory of Ishmael and what's going on with him, and we see that he's done really well. He's, uh, he himself has had 12 sons, and these become 12 princes of their own 12 tribes, which is interesting. And it goes back to a promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 21, where Abraham, he's asked by Sarah to send off Ishmael and Hagar, and Abraham's broken up about this because he really does love Ishmael. And God shows up and says, hey, Abraham, it's okay. Send Ishmael away. I will bless him. I'm going to bless him because he's part of your offspring. He will be blessed. The promise will still come through Isaac, but Ishmael will be blessed. And we see that that has come true. He really has been blessed. He has been fruitful and he has been multiplied. Now, if you and I were early Hebrews, and we're hearing our, of our heritage and this story for the very first time, we probably get to hear, and we hear about Ishmael, and we go, wow, Ishmael did really well. I wonder what Isaac's like. I wonder how many sons Isaac is going to have. Is he going to have 12 sons as well? Is he going to have 24 sons, twice as many as this Ishmael guy? 
But as we were to keep hearing this story, if it was our first time, we'd be shocked to see that Isaac can't have any sons. Isaac and Rebekah can't conceive. And so what do they do? Isaac goes to the Lord. Isaac goes to God and he prays and says, God, would you please open up Rebekah's womb? Would you give me sons? <clears throat> That's exactly what happens. Sometime after that, Rebekah conceives. She conceives and she feels that this pregnancy is something unordinary. She feels discomfort and this struggle within her. And there's no ultrasound. She doesn't know what's going on. And so she goes to God and says, God, what is going on? Why is there all this struggling inside of me? And God responds by saying, it's because there's two nations inside of you. There's a strong and a weak one, and I will use the, the, the strong will serve the weak. Now, I'm sure that doesn't help with the pain, but it probably gives reason to it. She now knows that it's not just one child in her, there's two, and it's because there's nations inside of her battling it out already. And shortly after this, she gives birth. She gives birth to a red, hairy baby named Esau and a heel-grabbing Jacob right afterwards. And we don't know really what happens with their early years, but we do know two things. We do know that Esau was a man of the field, that he um, loved to hunt. And Isaac loved Esau because he got to eat all of his food. He loved his firstborn Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, we know later on that he's a tender. He just he's a smooth man. He lives in tents, and Rebecca loved that. She loved having a mama's boy. And that's all we know about these two sons. There's a hunter and a tender, and each of the parents loved one over the other. Now, when parents pick favorites, when parents pick favorites, it sets the table in the household for an unhealthy obsession with competition. And we're going to see how that's going to play out in our passage. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read Genesis 25, verses 29 to 34. <clears throat> Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him. He sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Trish, this is the word of God. You may be seated. Not exactly a picture-perfect family that we would hope for from one of the patriarchs. But like I said, when parents choose favorites, there is an unhealthy obsession with competition, but it also has a lack of love in the household. Now here's what biblical love is, and I know that Andrews, I'm sure, has talked about those thoughts, but biblical love is this, doing something for someone else at a personal cost to yourself, regardless of how they respond. Biblical love is saying, this is going to make this person better, successful, more positive. But it's going to come at a cost to me. I'm not going to do it to get something from them, and they may even not like me. But I'm going to do it because I know this is best for them. 
That's what biblical love is. Biblical love is not an emotion, but it's a choice that we have to choose to do, regardless of how someone responds to us. John 15, 13. No greater love has man known than this, than man laying down his life for his friends. That is what love is, regardless of how this person responds. I'm going to do this because it's going to make them better. That's the type of love that Paul talks about in Ephesians when he says, the husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved them. Check, the women know it. <laughs> yeah. Tall order for us guys to fill. But it's one that can be filled because it's not, it's not one that's based in emotions. It's one that is based in choice. That we choose to do this love for somebody else. It's not just family. It's for anybody. I'm going to do this for them because it's going to be something that makes them better. It's going to set them up for success. Regardless of how they respond. Now that is biblical love. And biblical love is powerful. It's beautiful. And it's something that this world needs to see through the community of saints. Amen? Amen. There'll be more of those coming up. But as we look at Jacob and Esau, there's no biblical love between them. There's just selfishness. There's just me versus you, or me and mom versus you and dad. There's no love here. As we get to the first half of our text, we see that the younger tent-dwelling Jacob is at home. He's cooking some stew. And his older brother Esau was out in the field, presumably hunting, and he doesn't have the foresight to say, hey, I might be gone all morning, maybe I should bring some food with me or a little bit of bread. But he comes home in a huff because he's exhausted, he's done. And he practically begs Jacob for some food. But Jacob, being quick, being a trickster, looks at him with a blinking eye and says, send me a birthright. Give me a birthright and give now, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this story a hundred times, and it's probably something you colored in in a Bible coloring book when you were little. We kind of just breeze past it, but there's a lot going on here. And it's a really big deal, especially the level of coldness, cold-heartedness, and shrewdness that Jacob shows towards his brother. Picture this, you're going on a hike with your brother or sister, and you're going up hiking. It's a beautiful day. It's a nice, cloudless day. You're going to see the view from the top. And you get to the top, and you thought ahead. You're like, okay, I'm going on top of a mountain. It's going to be windy. It's going to be cold. So you get to the top, and you unzip your backpack, and you put on a hoodie, and you put on your jacket. But you look over at your brother or sister who didn't think ahead and thought, hey, it's sunny down at the base of the mountain. Maybe it'll be sunny and warm up there. And they're just in their t-shirt and shorts, and they're shivering. And they say, hey, can you give me like either your jacket or your hoodie? And you turn to them without thinking twice, and you say, okay, keys to your car. Give me the keys to your car at the top of this mountain, I'll give you the hoodie and the jacket. None of us would do that. But that's a similar extent of what Jacob is doing with Esau. There's no love going on here. It doesn't matter what he wants. It's what can I get from this? The value is so disproportional. It's not even like a tit-for-tat thing. You do something, and I do something here. It's a... Give me your birthright, and I'll give you some stew. Let's make that a fair trade, Esau. Now, for us in the room, are we us the firstborn in our family? Some of us? Do you know how many special perks you get as the firstborn? You don't have to show it. <laughs> but probably not much as a firstborn. 
Like, it's probably fairly evenly divided up. Your family divides stuff up between you and the rest of your siblings, probably. But that's not how the Bible treats the firstborn. That's not how the ancient world, and actually the rest of the world, probably treats the firstborn. The firstborn male is a huge deal. And it talks about it in a number of places throughout the Bible. In Genesis 49, at the end of the, uh, the book of Genesis, Jacob is old, and he's blessing all of his sons. And Reuben, his firstborn, he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. You're my might. You're my strength. You're my uh, preeminence and power. There's pride in the firstborn son that Jacob has. And as we look at those psalm passages, God talks about the firstborn of Egypt as the first fruits, the strength of Egypt I will strike down. Because all through the ancient world, the firstborn would be the face of the family after the father passes on. The firstborn was the strength to carry on whatever the family was going to do next. There wasn't just a, uh, an inheritance of finance. There was an inheritance of pride and power and strength and reputation that was going to come with being the firstborn of whoever your father was. But in the Bible, there is a law that even solidified this in Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17 says this. If, there is, uh, if there's a man who has two wives, so he has one that he doesn't love and one that he loves, and the man has a, his first son with the woman that he doesn't love, and then later on has a son by the woman that he loves, the law said, although it's the woman that you love, you give your first inheritance, your double portion of your hands to the very first son that you have, even if it's through the one that you didn't love. Because he is your firstborn. He's your strength. He's the first from your lineage. So the Bible says, hey, there's a lot that says the first one gets double whatever the other kids are getting. And we even see that, like I said, at the beginning of chapter 25 in Genesis here. Isaac gets everything. He doesn't even just get a double portion or double. He gets everything. The other sons from um, Abraham got gifts, but Isaac gets everything. Now, as we spin and we look at Jacob and Esau, Esau being the first one, would have fully known what was coming his way. He would have known that everything was going to come to him. Would have, he should have had his eyes up saying, man, Abraham gave everything to my father Isaac, and all that's going to be mine one day. But instead of keeping his eyes up looking forward, Isaac says this, Oh, sorry, Esau. Esau says, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob, doing his best Batman impersonation, says, swear to me, now. So he swore to him. He sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread, a mental stew, and he ate, he drank, and he rose, and went his way, and thus he despised his birthright. What use, Jacob, is that birthright to me out there? All this stuff, all the servants and the herds and the gold and the silver that we have, I can't eat that right now, but I can eat your stew. So give me that now. The way that we talked about at the beginning, Isaiah 53, we're despised. It's the same Hebrew word that's used there as used here. The way that we talked about this, the people um, thinking and despising this future Messiah is the same word that describes how Esau felt and reacted towards his future birthright. Now, he didn't really care. He didn't care what was coming. But I could have something right now for it. 
great. Cost me basically nothing in the moment, but I can have this food. Esau, unfortunately, was blinded. Blinded by what he can have right now. His fleshly temptation said, I'm hungry now, rather than looking up and saying, man, but look at all this that's coming with me. All the tents and herds and the riches and the honor that's coming to me. And that's worth waiting for. And so he says, man, but this right here, this food right here in front of me, I'll take that. Sure, Jacob, I'll swear it to you. Just take it. Give me some food. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and say, man, Esau, you're so stupid. You're so dumb. How could you have sold your birthright for some stew? So dumb. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is expecting us to think when he makes mention of this passage in his letter to the Hebrews. Before we read that, I want to read kind of a summary of the Hebrews uh, book, the book of Hebrews, uh, from this commentary in regards to Esau. The primary call of the letter to the Hebrews is for disciplined obedience in the face of persecution. The urging throughout is that waiting for and believing in the sure promises of God will lead to blessings of rest and inheritance. Those who do not believe the promises and want more immediate satisfaction will no doubt compromise their faith for the sake of easier gain. Church, whether it's persecution or temptation or what I can have right here, right now, must be faced with disciplined obedience to the Word of God. Looking up from what is in front of us, looking up and saying, this is what God wants me to do. This is how God wants me to do. This is what is coming my way. That no matter what, I'm going to choose to follow God. I'm going to discipline myself to have um, to have self-control to say, I can say no to things now because there's a big yes coming with Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I have a pretty good idea when I hear from Andrew that most of you guys are in some sort of Bible study throughout the week, probably. And that's great. I know at our church, we're a smaller church, we're probably about like just this side of the room. It's probably the extent of us. But we are, we're probably about 95% of all of us in some sort of Bible study group throughout the week. I'm sure that's probably the same with a lot of you guys. That's great. Because how do we stay disciplined in obedience to God? It's through the Word of God, primarily. It's through prayer. And it's through the community of saints around us. This group around us. Those three things keep us accountable to know what God wants us to do, to keep us on the right track, to keep our eyes up about what is in front of us right now and say, okay, there is something worth waiting for. There is something worth fighting for here. I don't want to just give in right now to what I can have in the moment. We need the community of saints around us. We need that. Because as the writer of Hebrews will say, this is Hebrews 12, uh, 15 and 16, I believe. I'll put it up on the screen, but I need it. Hebrews 12, 15 and 16 say, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness uh, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Esau is our example of becoming unholy. Now, if holiness and holy means 
literally means set aside. You are set apart for God. Then unholy means common, just general. Esau had an inheritance coming his way. He had. It was going to be his one. He didn't have to fight for that. And yet, he was willing to say, ah, but I can have this right now. I have stew right now. This. I'm blinded by this. Then yeah, I'll take that. We can look at Esau. We can compare him to believers nowadays. Believers who have turned away from the love of God. Here's what the writer of Hebrews isn't saying. The writer of Hebrews is not saying, every time you sin, Christian, you're an Esau. Every time you did your one little one-off sin or whatever, you're, you're an Esau. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The writer of Hebrews is saying this. If we continually walk in a pattern that has our head down, looking at what I can take right now in this world, then yeah, then we have in fact sold our birthright for what we can have right now. We have in fact become common. It's the same tone as he says later on in Hebrew, or earlier on in Hebrews 6, when he says, careful Christians, because those who have tasted, those who have seen, those who have partaken in the goodness of God and yet have turned away and have fallen away, it's next to impossible for them to come back. He's making the point, hey, you have an inheritance coming your way, but it is possible for you to say no to that and walk away. Look at Esau. Peter there in 2 Peter 2, 22 shows us exactly how God feels about that when a, somebody who is in the goodness of God decides to, decides to turn away and walk away. He says it's gross. It's like a dog returning to its vomit or a pig after washing going back to wallow in the mud. It's gross. You have an inheritance coming your way and you gave it up for what you can have temporarily right now. People who walk away from the faith, believers who have walked away from the faith, don't do it for a meal. But they do it for some sort of fleshly temptation, whether that's something sexual, or it's greed, or it's um, pride, or gossip, or success, or, or, or. People continually choose those things over God. And they have, in fact, sold their birthright for next to nothing. Esau's our negative example, so we can be wary. So we can say, hey, it's a real thing. So it's something we should really be awake and alert for it that going God's way has its benefits. We can compare Esau to believers that we all know who have walked away, because both of them had loving fathers who wanted to give them the full blessed inheritance. Both Esau and former believers who have walked away were rightful heirs to that inheritance. They had it coming to them. But both Esau and former believers who have walked away wanted something in this life wanted something you needed, something right in front of their face in exchange for next to nothing. If there's a lesson to be learned about the story of Esau selling his birthright, is this. Keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes up above what is in front of you right now. And stay focused on the promise that is coming to you. The promise that we have in Jesus is where our focus needs to be, the inheritance that is coming to us. The thing we just celebrated with communion. The thing that Jesus himself is looking forward to. One day I'm going to partake in this beautiful meal of celebration with you guys. We say, yes, I want that too, Jesus. And saying no to temptation and holding strong to persecution is so, so worth it here. That we must have a heavenly perspective in this life. Paul and Peter 
Paul and Peter both talk about this throughout their letters. They say this life will not be easy. This life will have temptations. It will have persecution. It will have times where you just want to throw in the towel. But these two brothers beg us. And church throughout history say, but it's so, so worth it. If you hold fast to the very end, there is something worth waiting for. We can't put it into words. But if you keep your eyes up and fixed on Jesus, and you run the race to the end, and you fight the good fight to the very end, there's a reward that is so, so worth it. I think it's in Hebrews 4. He calls it a Sabbath rest. There is a rest coming, church. If there's a warning from this story and the Hebrews mention of it. It's that it's a very real temptation for those of us who believe right now. It's a very real temptation for us to throw it all away and take what we can take right now in this life. Apostasy, walking away from faith. That is the warning that the writer of Hebrews says that we get from Isaac, or sorry, um, Esau. We can give it all up and we can take pleasure right here, right now. That's the warning that we have. That we can be blinded by the flesh of what it wants right now. It's not food, but it can be anything if we consistently choose that. Keyword, consistently choose that. And there's a real temptation, or there's a real possibility we might end up like Esau. Esau didn't wait for us to come because it was too far away. So there's no real point. I can't have that now, so I'll take this. We may think, okay, right, see, I'm a believer, I've been a believer my whole life. I'm not worried about walking away. I'd say to every person that we know who was once a believer and has walked away, they said the same thing too. We all have to keep each other accountable. The community of saints being in the word, not just on a Sunday morning, but through a Bible study and on your own devotions and in prayer, staying connected with the Father is hugely important. We must, I tell this to my church all the time. Um, I tell them, run and fight well. All the time, every week I say that. Run and fight well. All the days of your life. Church, stay in the word of God. Stay in prayer and stay in the community of saints. Keep your eyes up and fixed on Jesus and run every day the race that is set before you. Get to heaven tired, receive the crown of life, and hear Jesus Christ say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen? My good and faithful servant. Jesus said, you were faithful to my call that I had upon your life. You were faithful to the obedience I set up before you, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of temptation that was right in front of you. You said no. You were faithful to me. Enjoy your Sabbath rest. Church, the way we usually end at chapel is we usually end with just private prayer, just between us and God. Just 60 seconds, just quietly between you and God. I want to end like that here. Let's respond to God. Maybe we need to pray, God, keep my eyes up. Keep my eyes up and fix on you. Or make me, uh, make me have self-control. Help me have self-control to say no to what's in front of me right now. Or maybe we can just rest in private prayer and say, man, I'm so excited for that rest, that Sabbath rest coming one day. Heavenly Father, thank you for Genesis House. Thank you for the brothers and sisters that are in this room, or for those who couldn't be here, whether they're sick or out of town or whatever it might be, I pray that they would still feel connected and part of uh, the community and the body of believers. 
God, I'm thankful for your word that you've shed light not just on the good things, but also um, the sad and the bad things about the Bible. Like, give us examples um, to be wary in our life. Lord, Esau um, is an example to us, not of what we should do, but of something we should be careful of. Church, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that we would keep our eyes up and fixed upon you and our promise coming our way. That our love for you would be greater than the love that we have for the, uh, the world around us. Lord, as we move into to dialogue here, I pray that you would um, give me wisdom and give us wisdom as we ask questions and answer and we just talk more about your word. Yeah. Bless our time. In Jesus' name. Yeah.